Well, as you look up on my title slide, you can see that it says the background to the beginning in Acts chapter 1. And today I had planned on going into the background of what we see before Acts chapter 2, where the church experienced its birth at Pentecost. And we're going to still do that, but just in a little bit different way. Uh, I know you've all had weeks where you had no control of what happened, and this week has been one of those for me. Uh, As you drove in this morning, you might have noticed the uh, column in the billboard that's sitting on the corner of Roletto over there. Uh, That's going to be an 80-foot high billboard, uh, electronic billboard that's being put in by Clear Channel. And uh, we were notified about that the morning that they started drilling the hole right there on the corner. Uh, Kevin and Presbyterian's leadership called and asked me to come over to an emergency meeting. That was about the same time that they found out about the billboard as well. And so we've spent this week in meetings with uh, Clear Channel, city officials, others. Uh, what happens is there's a 12-foot easement there on the corner that allowed the city of Castle Hills to uh, sign a contract with Clear Channel to erect this billboard. And none of our churches were given any notice of the construction. And uh, so we've been in all these meetings trying to do what we can to try to mitigate or control the content of what may be showing up on that billboard. Now, I'll tell you that I applaud the the city leadership of Castle Hills in looking for creative ways to find financing for the city, but what we've expressed our concern about is the different standard of notice that we as a church have had to do in every one of our projects and what we experienced, as well as I said, our, our biggest concern is what the content of that billboard will be. So I would ask that you continue to be in prayer as we meet with representatives of Clear Channel in the city and trying to uh, set some standards. Uh, we have an elementary school right up the street that will be viewing that. We have a uh, 80-foot billboard that will be flashing above both of our churches. And uh, Covenant asked that I share with you that they had no part in that decision. They don't want us to think that they sold out and allowed that to be put on the corner. So uh, I want you to know that Our brothers and sisters across the street are uh, taking just as much surprise as we were by the the situation. So again, please be in prayer as we meet with the representatives to try to uh, mitigate what content will be up there uh, flashing above our churches. We as believers live in a day and age where we are called to be salt and light in a dark and dying world. And while uh, society has just been given an 80-foot flashing sign above our two churches, I still believe that we have a a greater power than they do, a greater presence. We have had the light of the gospel going out from this corner of the city for decades, and we will continue to do do so. So uh, we're, we're studying the book of Acts. We're seeing where God said that he would give to the believers there his power. Uh, his ability to be witnesses for Christ. And so this is just another example of where we need God's power as we engage uh, the community and the things in which we live. So as we're looking today at the background of the book of Acts, as I said, I still want to do that, but I want to take a little different track this morning by looking uh, in John chapter 21. You can turn back just a page or two. Because in Acts 1.15, we see that it says, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren, a gathering of about 120 persons who were there together. Now, the apostle Peter is, as we see, in the leadership position of the early church. And uh, this was something Jesus said would occur. In Matthew 16.18, Jesus said, You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. 
Now, if you're familiar with what the Bible says about Peter, you know that there was a point in his life where the rock appeared to crumble because Peter was one who uh, denied Jesus Christ three times. So as we come to the beginning of the church and we see Peter in this leadership position, uh, there would be those who would say, why is he in that position? And today what I want us to see is in spite of the failure leading up uh, to this point in the history of the church, we can see here that, that God hit the reset button for, the, for Peter and that he recommissioned him as we're going to be looking at today. So in John chapter 21, 1, it begins by saying, After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. Now, when it says after these things, if we were reading through the Gospel of John, we would see previous to this, there had been uh, several resurrection appearances found in John chapter 20. Uh, One of those is where it says, uh, with the women who came to the tomb and found the stone rolled away. And when they went to report this to the disciples, you'll recall that it was Peter and John who were those who ran to the tomb Uh, And they found it empty except for the grave clothes lying there. Now, John saw the clothes and believed. But Peter did not yet come to faith and believing the resurrection, the physical resurrection of Jesus had occurred. That would come later. Uh, Mary is actually the first who saw the resurrected Lord. Uh, Her account is found in John 20, verses 11 through 18. There, uh, John records... Uh, how she met the Lord in his physical form. And then later, there were two different appearances of the resurrected Lord to the disciples. I'm I'm giving you this background because it's what we talked about in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, where Luke, who is writing the gospel of Luke, as well as the book of Acts, said there were many convincing proofs. And if you were here, you'll recall we talked about these. And these are the things that John is also recording for us in his gospel. And as we read in John chapter 21, we're told that Jesus showed himself, it says, again to the disciples. In verse 14, it tells us it was the third time that Jesus appeared to them. Now, if you look at the uh, four Gospels and put them side by side and look at all the resurrection appearances, this is actually the seventh appearance of Jesus. And yet John says that it is the third time. So is this a contradiction? Well, no. Many times when you find differences like this, you have to look at what is being talked about. And from the account where it says the third time versus the seventh, it's that this is the time where the entirety of the disciples were together as a group. And so as we look at the first two appearances of the disciples, they were behind locked doors. They were hiding in fear, you'll recall. They uh, thought Jesus had been uh, crucified and, and it was all over. He had indeed been crucified. But once he rose from the dead, the disciples knew they no longer had to fear death itself. And so in this passage, uh, we find they're no longer hiding behind locked doors, but they're out in public. In fact, what it tells us is they were at the Sea of Tiberias. Now, throughout the Bible, the Sea of Tiberias is also called the Lake of Gennesaret or the Sea of Galilee. So these guys are out. As we see in verse 3, Peter says, I'm going fishing. And the other disciples said, well, we will also come with you. Now, as you read the rest of the verse, you you can see that we're indeed reading the word of God. Because unlike many fishing trips, we're told they caught nothing. Uh, The truth is here. Now, 
I've read books that uh, tell you the reason the disciples caught nothing is it was God's judgment for their disobedience. You'll recall they had been called to be fishers of men, and now we find them back being fishermen. Several of the disciples had been professional fishermen before. Now, while that may preach and sound good, that's not accurate. Because as you read through the Bible, you see these guys aren't being disobedient by being there. In Mark 14, 28, Jesus told the disciples, go to Galilee. And in Matthew 28, 10, we read, then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they shall see me. Now, in Acts chapter 1, you'll recall we've seen that the disciples were told to wait in Jerusalem. And again, this isn't a contradiction. It's a chronology of what's happening. Uh, Luke told us at the beginning of Acts 1 that there were 40 days of appearances where Jesus was appearing. And so what has happened in Acts chapter 1, we are at the point of the ascension where Jesus ascended into heaven after the 40 days of appearances. Before that, he said, he said, stay in the area of Galilee. But now he tells them to go and wait in Jerusalem after the ascension. There will be 10 days between his ascension and Pentecost that will happen in chapter 2. And so they indeed go to wait in Jerusalem, uh, as we see further in the book of Acts. But right now, they're doing what they had been told to do. They were in the area of Galilee, and as they wait, uh, Jesus wasn't upset they were fishing. As you read through the account, nowhere does he rebuke them for fishing. I mean, sometimes as believers, we think that once we become a Christian, that God says, that's it, no more fun. Uh, now, some of you don't think fishing is fun, but I do. I enjoy fishing. And there's, there's nothing wrong with going fishing. And remember, as they're waiting, just at a very practical level, these guys needed to eat. And if that was their profession, that's how they knew how to feed themselves. Uh, this may be why we find them out fishing. Now, verses 4 and 5 in John tell us, But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach. This is one of his resurrection appearances. It says, He stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus therefore said to them, Children, you do not have any fish, do you? And they answered him, No. Now, again, if you've ever done much fishing, you recognize the scene. You're there, whether it's in a boat, a dock, or on the bank, and people walk by, and what do they want to know? Had any luck? Catch anything? And uh, as Jesus asks a question here, he already knows the answer because in the Greek text, he uses the, the negative particle may, which means it expects a negative answer. It's a rhetorical question. He says, you boys haven't caught a thing, have you? And uh, the guys, you see the frustration as they give a one-word answer, no. Now, catching nothing may be a common occurrence for some of us. But these are professionals. Remember, these guys were professional fishermen. So uh, they're frustrated. And then, like many of us, you've gotten that uh, unasked-for advice, and the person says, well, if you'll take a purple worm, throw it by that stump in the weeds, you'll catch a big one, right? So Jesus says to them in verse 6, cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you will find a catch. They cast, therefore... And they were not able to, to haul it in because of the great number of the fish. Now, in Luke chapter 5, uh, there's another instance where Jesus gave some fishing advice. 
This was before uh, several of the, before Peter and the others were followers of Christ. They were out fishing, and Jesus came along. They had had a similar day, and he gave that, them advice on where to cast the net. And in Luke 5, 8, there it says that the same thing happened. Their nets were filled, and we're told that when Peter, Peter, this longshoreman dock worker, this grisly, unsanctified person, uh, recognizes that this was a divine event. His response there in Luke's gospel, before he had been a follower of Christ, was to fall on his face at Jesus' knees. And as he, as he was there on his face, he said, Lord, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. He says, you are not a mere man. And, and if you knew all about who I am, you would want nothing to do with me. And Jesus knew all about Peter. And what did he do? He didn't say, you're right, you're a wretched sinner, get out of my presence. Instead, he said, follow me. And Peter became a follower of Christ. And uh, as we look at John's account here, we see that they again realize at this point, this is the Lord. Now look at what verse 7 tells us. It says, that disciple, therefore, whom Jesus loved, this is John, John the Beloved, he said to Peter, it's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, it says he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. Now, we read that and we go, what do you mean you got dressed to jump into the water? Well, in the Old Testament, it says when you come, the Levitical priests were told when they come into the presence of God, they were not to allow their nakedness to be seen. And so Peter at this point, I believe, is recognizing this is God, and he dresses himself, he throws himself in the water, and he swims ashore. Now, that's an exact opposite reaction of the previous one. He's in the presence of Jesus the first time, and he says, Lord, just get away from me. Here, he wants to get to the Lord as fast as he can. Now, remember that... um, What verses 8 and 11 tell us, let's stay with the story for a moment. It says, But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards away, dragging the net full of fish. And so when they got out upon the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid, and fish placed on it, and bread. And Jesus said, "Bring, Bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Simon Peter went up and he drew the net to land full of large fish, 153, although there were so many, but the net did not break. It was not torn. Now, at this point, what we see is is Peter doing what a lot of us have done. Have you ever messed up in your life? And, and you get around that person that you've messed up and, and you know, you kind of look down at your shoes and and, and you're, you're figuring, how in the world do I make atonement? What, what do I do to, to try to make things right? And here's Peter. I mean, he's a guy who's literally gone overboard, right? He's jumped in the water. He swam ashore. He gets there. Now, it's, it's, you, you picture the scene. He's standing there on the shore just dripping wet by Jesus. And where are the other guys? Well, they're paddling in, dragging this net, and they're both looking at the boat. Okay, they finally made And Jesus says, hey, bring some of the fish. And when he does that, it, the text says he told them, plural, hey, you guys uh, grab some of the fish out of the, the thing. Now, it says there's 153. Friends, I don't see any real significance in the number. They were professional fishermen. They knew to count a catch, to divide it up. 
Uh, one thing we see is it's, it says they were megalone. That's a Greek word that means they were big fish. These weren't your little minnows. These were big fish. So that tells you they weighed uh, at least a pound to a couple pounds each. That's, that's 300 pounds of fish at a minimum. You've got a net that's wet. That's, that's heavy. They're dragging. This is several hundred pounds they're trying to get ashore. And what does Peter do? Everybody starts to reach over. And Peter, I got it. I got it. You know, and he's waving everybody off. He runs in the water. He's already wet. And they see him. He's dragging. They're coming. No, 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 no. I got it. So, you know, everybody's just standing back. Okay, Pete, knock yourself out. You know, <laughs> Peter gets it ashore. And then what does he do? Uh, he, he grabs a couple fish and whipping out his, his knife, he fillets them. He runs over, he lays them out on the fire next to what Jesus already has going. And, and, and he's standing there, what next, Jesus? What else? What can I do? And everybody's standing there, just kind of going, Peter, Peter, it's okay. Just chill. And, and you know, but Peter's feeling bad. Why is Peter feeling bad? Peter's the guy who's denied Jesus. Peter's the guy who's in front of the other disciples. And, and as this is all happening and everybody's watching Peter. Just they're, they're all feeling bad for Peter. He's doing what he can to, to try to work back into God's favor, it looks like. And in verse 12, Jesus said to them, Come, have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him, saying, Who are you? They know it's the Lord. Now, as you look at the resurrection accounts, you know what we see is when Jesus appears, nobody notices right off the bat that this is him. Mary thought he was the gardener. Where have you hidden the body of Jesus? The guys, the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, uh, Emmaus they, they get to a point where they say, weren't, weren't our hearts burning as he was speaking? We should have known it was him. We, we see that they, they, Jesus is there, but they don't yet recognize him. They all know this is him, but why don't they know? Why, what, what can they not see? You know, one of the questions people often ask is, when we get to heaven, are we going to know our loved ones? Are we going to see people and recognize them? And I always say, yes. And what we're going to find when we get to heaven is this. The people there are going to be different enough and yet similar enough. When we get to heaven, you're going to see me with muscles, okay? <laughs> because we, we get a glorified body. We get to be, you know, so, some of you are thinking I'm going to have Fabian long blonde hair down to my, you know, and muscles and all. You picture a glorified body. And when it comes to Jesus... Revelation 5, 6 tells us in heaven he will bear the marks of the crucifixion. It says we will look at him as a lamb that was slain. So he's in this, this glorified body. He's different enough that at the first glance you don't see him as he was. And yet as you study him, you notice this is him. And as the disciples are there with Jesus, as he's distributing the food, the fish, the loaves and the, the fish for breakfast, uh, they, they see the nail marks in his hands. And they go, this is the Lord. I mean, think, think about what's happening. In, in John twenty twenty seven, Thomas was told to put his finger in the holes 
and the, the nails that had, had driven, been driven through, those spikes that had been in his hands. Put, put your fist in my side. I mean, here's Thomas saying, I've, I've touched those holes. Remember when we were in the upper room and he appeared and said, Thomas, reach here your, your fingers. And, and they're watching this. They're seeing those hands. As, as he's handing out the food to them, I wonder if their minds went back to the, the memories of the feeding of the 5,000, where the hands were not yet nail-scarred, and yet they were the ones that were multiplying the fishes and loaves and, and passing it out to them. As these memories are, are flooding back, what, what about Peter? What, what about Peter? You know, Jesus, as he, he told them at the Last Supper, as he gave the food, he said, take and eat this. This is my body. As he gives them the bread. And Peter, it was there that he was saying, you know, Lord, if everybody else denies you, I won't. And, and it tells us they're standing by what? A charcoal fire. Have you ever smelled something and suddenly just a flood of memories comes rushing back to you? Uh, you, you've, you, you know, our minds are wired, so when we, we experience a smell, it triggers a memory. Uh, Peter had stood by a charcoal fire before. In John chapter 18, you can turn there if you want. In John 18, 16, we're told uh, about the denial of Jesus. And it says, but Peter was standing at the door outside. So the other disciple, whom was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought in Peter. This is when the trial was taking place. Jesus has been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's been dragged from one kangaroo court to another. And this is one of the trials. And, and Peter and some of the disciples were following at a distance in fear. And one guy has already gotten in, and he comes to the door and says, Hey, let this guy in. So Peter comes into the courtyard of the high priest. And it says, The slave girl, therefore who kept the door, said to Peter, You are not also one of the man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. I mean, get this. It's, it's a little girl standing at the door. And she goes, Hey, you're one of the guys, aren't you? Oh, I don't know him. I mean, Peter's afraid of a little girl at this point. Now, the slaves, it says, and the officers standing there, having made a charcoal fire, there's the fire, for it was cold and they were warming themselves. And Peter was also with them, standing and warming himself. And they said, therefore, to him, you are not also one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. So they're standing around a burn barrel. If you've ever been on a street corner in a back alley situation, they're all warming their hands. And, and one of them goes, hey, you, you were there, weren't you? Oh, no, 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 you got me confused with somebody else. Now, one of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, remember that situation? They're in the garden. There's the arrest taking place. Peter whips out his sword, and, and he swings it, and he cuts off the ear of that, that one slave. And Jesus restored and healed that ear before they took him away. And the guy standing there says, oh, no, no, no. Did I not see you in the garden with him? I know you. And Peter, therefore, denied it again. And immediately a cock crowed. Three times Peter denied the Lord. And here, standing around that charcoal fire, everybody's there warming themselves. And Peter, still looking at his feet, can't look the Lord in the face. He's, he's, he's wanting to make things right. And he just doesn't know what to do. Now, 
as we're looking at this, if you think the, the, the fire itself didn't bring back these memories, the question in John twenty one fifteen would have. Look at what it says. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Hey, Simon, yes, Lord, what? What can I get you? Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? It's not the fishes and fishing and the boat and the nets. He's saying, do you, Peter, do you really love me more than these other guys, these other 10 disciples standing around? Now, I want you to notice the process that's used in this passage for dealing with Peter's failure and the forgiveness that's needed because it stands as a model for us in those times where we need to deal with something in the life of another, a problem or a past hurt in our own lives. One of the things is we see how Jesus chooses the right time to deal with the issue. I mean, I want you to remember that uh, when Jesus is standing on the seashore, it says the disciples have been out fishing all night. I mentioned Echo Weekend and how tired some of these folks are that have been serving for two days. The disciples are sleep-deprived, they're hungry, they haven't caught anything, uh, Peter, Peter's wet. He dove in the water. He's still dripping wet. He's standing there. And, and what did Jesus do? The first thing he said is, hey, listen, come on, guys, sit down, take a load off. Have some food. I've got, I've got breakfast prepared. You guys need to nourish yourselves. You need to rest a little. Peter, come stand by the fire. Warm yourself. Dry off. You're sitting there shaking cold. And so he waits for the right time. He, he, he doesn't immediately fire off the question to Peter at the first moment. But what he does is he lets him get fed. He lets him rest. He lets him get warm a little. How, how many times have you ever had a long day at work or maybe uh, some situation at school was hard and you walk through the door of your house and somebody is waiting for you right at the door and says, do you know what your son, your daughter, your dog, you fill in the blank, right, did? And what are you going to do about it? You've just battled rush hour traffic. You need to go to the restroom. Maybe you just need a, a, a drink of water. You just want to sit down for a moment and decompress. Are you in the right mode or mind to deal with another conflict? Or does it just escalate the situation immediately? And so sometimes what we have to do is just slow down and pick the right time. And this is what Jesus does at first. Now, something else that's important to see is the process. In Matthew chapter 18, we're told how to confront an issue in somebody's life. And what it says is we should first go to the person individually. You don't immediately bring a group of people. You go to the person first. And if they don't uh, respond in a repentant way, then it says you bring uh, some others with you. And then if that still doesn't, then you up the level and you bring it to a larger group like the church. And you may be saying, yeah, but Roger, we're, we're reading here how Jesus is talking to Peter in front of the group, and you just told us that Peter's trying to work his way back into God's graces. And all of that is true. But you see, there's a, a backstory to the backstory here. Because as you read through the scriptures, what you see is this isn't the first encounter with Jesus and Peter. As you look in uh, Luke chapter 24 and verse 34 and in 1 Corinthians 15, 5, you'll see that before this group meeting took place, it says that the Lord appeared to Peter solo. See, the Lord has already had a one-on-one with Peter. Now, we're not told what was discussed. But it's easy to see that what was discussed is Peter's past failure. And, and Jesus said to him, Peter, I've forgiven you. Peter, I've, I've hit the reset button. 
Because in the first case where he confronted, where he was confronted with the Lord, Peter said, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. And he wanted to get away from God as fast as he could. Here, when he hears it's Jesus on the shore, he doesn't huddle in the back corner of the boat and say, oh, how am I going to face him? He went overboard. He jumped in. He couldn't wait to get next to the Lord. Jesus had already said, Peter, we're good. You're forgiven. Now, if all that is the case, then why is Jesus bringing the issue up in front of other people? And the reason for that is because Peter brought the issue up in front of other people. And what we're looking at is a process of healing and restoration. When Jesus asked Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? It goes back to the boast that Peter made in Mark chapter 14. In Mark 14, 29 through 30, there it says, Peter said to Jesus, even though all, meaning all the other disciples, even though all may fall away, he said, yet I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, that you yourself this very night, before a cock crows twice, shall three times deny me. See, that was at the Last Supper. When Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me, they're all looking around. Who is it? Is it this one, this one? You know, and they all start arguing about who's going to do what. And Peter said, hey, hey, hey. All these other wimps may run out on you, Jesus, but not me. I'm the guy who will be with you. I will, I'll die for you. And at first in the garden, he whips out the sword. He shows that. But as, as there was more opportunity, what did he do? He denied the Lord, not once, not twice, but three times. All the other disciples heard Jesus say, hey, I love you more than these guys. Even if they run, I will die for you. But as we just read in John 18, Peter didn't do that. He denied the Lord. So now here in front of all the other disciples that Peter had previously boasted in front of, Jesus says, hey, Peter, we've got something we need to deal with. So he says in John 21, 15, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, if you're using a new international version, verses 15 and 16 say, do you truly love me? The, the Greek word that is used is agape. There are different words in the Greek language for love. Uh, there's eros for erotic love. There's phileo, of Philadelphia, brotherly love. There's agape. This is, this is the all-giving, self-sacrificing love. This is the kind of love that says, I will die for you. And, and so Peter had earlier said, I love you so much, I will die for you. So Jesus says, Peter, do you agape me? Will you die for me, Peter? And look at how Peter responds. He uses a different word. He says, Jesus, I phileo you. I have a, a love for you, Jesus. But it's, it, 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 it's a step down. It's, it's not that I'll go to the wall and die for you. It's a brotherly love. Now, brothers die for one another. They're, that happens. But he's saying, let me take it down a level, Jesus. So Jesus responds and says, tend my lambs. In verse 16, he said to him again, Simon, son of John, do you agape me? Peter. How much do you love me? Do you agape me? And Peter says, Lord, you know that I 
phileo you. Jesus said to him, shepherd my sheep. Verse 17, he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Do you phileo me? And he says, I phileo you, Jesus. Now, what happened? Why did Jesus change from agape to phileo? And look at the response. It says, Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you phileo me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I phileo. I love you, Jesus. And he said to him, tend my sheep. Now, some have said that when Jesus changed the word from agape to phileo, he says, yeah, Peter, I know you don't love me enough to die for me. You're you're really not that guy. You really won't go to the wall for me. But again, as much as you may read that in some books, that's wrong. Because I want you to look at what's said in John 21, 18 through 19. Because there, what you find is Jesus is telling Peter the type of martyr's death he's going to die. He says, Peter, you're going to die one day for me. As you read the account there, historians tell us that Nero, when persecution was taking place, Peter was arrested. He was brought before Nero's court. He was given the opportunity to deny Jesus or die. And it says that this time Peter said, I will die. I will not deny Jesus. And when he was taken out to be crucified, historians tell us that they were going to crucify Peter like they had done to Jesus on a cross. And Peter said to them, I am not worthy to die in the same way that my Lord did. Crucify me upside down. And that's how Peter was martyred. So as we look at what is said here, the the purpose of the question is not that Jesus is saying, yeah, Peter, I thought so, that you're not that guy who will go to to the death for me. What he says is, Peter, I'm not done with you yet because I know you're not done with me. And the reason Peter grieves and cries here is not because Jesus was cruel to him. It's because like a surgeon who opens a cancerous womb and digs in and cuts out all the disease, Jesus said, we have to open this wound up wide. We have to dig out all the junk that has been hidden because we want you to go forward healed and whole. And in order to do so, we have to do this in front of all the other guys. The guys who, moving forward in the, in the church as it goes forward, won't be saying all the time, yeah, but why does Peter think he's the leader? I mean, he's the guy that denied Jesus. And what Jesus is saying to the other ten disciples, the other apostles at this moment is, listen, Peter and I are good. I've hit the reset button. I've restored him. Peter is the rock. Peter is the guy who is going to be uh, the first among equals. He is going to be the leader of leaders in the church. And these questions in front of them give Peter a public opportunity to reaffirm his love for the Lord the three times that he denied his love for the Lord. And with each affirmation of his love, don't miss the recommissioning. He told him, you're going to tend my sheep. You're going to feed my sheep. He uses different words, starting with the littlest lambs all the way to the mature sheep. What God says is there is no limit to your restoration and recommissioning. When, when things get tough, he says, you turned your back on me, but you're not finished. God doesn't say to us when we make a mistake, I'm done with you. Uh, that it's over. You know, he, he could have said to Peter, Peter, you were the, you were the rock. 
I counted on you. You you were my guy and you blew it. And so you're finished. He doesn't do that. And friends, he doesn't do that with us. When you have a failure in your life, failure is not final. Now, yes, there is a process of restoration. Yes, there are steps that have to take place in order to bring you back. Again, the text isn't giving us all that occurred. What we're given are the, the, the macro snapshots of the events. And what's important for us to see, each case is different depending upon the circumstances. So for me to stand here and tell you every which way the steps of restoration that would have to take place in your own situation, that needs to be a private one-on-one conversation as we talk through what have been your failures, what are the things to rebuild uh, you to that place. But as we look, what you see is God says is, uh, I'm a God of great grace. And when you repent, when you return to me, I hit the reset button. 1 John 1, nine tells us, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All. It doesn't say, well, you know, here, here, you know, all but this one. The Bible says there's only one unforgivable sin. That's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And blasphemy of the Holy Spirit equates to rejection of who God is, that you reject Jesus. It's when the the religious leader said, hey, you're not the Messiah. You're not God's son. You cast out these demons by the power of Beelzebul. You're, You're doing the work of Satan because you're from Satan. They rejected who Jesus was. And so if you're sitting here today saying, well, have I done that sin? If you've rejected Jesus as your Savior, that's the unforgivable sin. The great white throne judgment says, on that day, God sends us away from him. That's the only way that you're separated from God. All of our other sins, while there are consequences to them, they don't separate us from God for eternity. And what God wants you to hear today is that he's not done with you. I know that some of you, it took everything you had to walk into church this morning, didn't it? Some of you have made mistakes in your life. And as you thought about walking through the doors of Wayside this morning, you thought, how can I come in that church? How can I face that person? How can I look at that person I've wronged? How can I, having done something, you know, look that person square in the eye? And what God says to you and me is, the pews are full of Peters. The pulpit is full of a Peter. I'm, I'm a sinner just like you. And what God says to us is no matter what your past mistakes are, abortion, addiction, drugs, pornography, you fill in, you pick the path of your sin. What God says to you is there is a way home, and it comes through my son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross to pay the penalty of death for your sins. Jesus said in John fourteen six, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And he says, whatever mess you've made of your life, there is the opportunity for forgiveness, for restoration today. If you will turn from it and you will turn to me. If you will confess your sin, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins, it says, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Romans 5.8 tells us, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. His love is that word agape. God demonstrates his all-giving, self-sacrificing love in that he was willing to die for you and me to pay the penalty of our sin. It's what's found in John 3.16. For God so agape, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Friends, I don't know all the details of your life, but God does. And God says there is nothing 
that will cause him to say, get away from me. What he says instead is, I'm waiting with arms open wide. I loved you enough to spread my arms on the cross to die for you. And those arms are still open today. And he says, if you will turn from your sin and you will turn to him as your savior, he will welcome you home. The Bible tells us there is none righteous, no, not one in Romans 3.23. It says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's every single one of us. And what he says is, I have the way home for you. I have the way of forgiveness to restore you. But it requires you to turn back to me. In Romans 10.9, it says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus told Peter, Peter, follow me. And he says the same thing to you and I today. Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? And today he's asking you the very same question. Do you love him? Jesus already showed that he loves you and me. He spread his arms wide on the cross. He died for us and those arms are still open today. And what he says to us today is for anyone who is here, who has felt far from me, who has been running, who thinks you need to hide from me, that thinks you need to run around like Peter was doing to try to earn your way into my good graces. He says, just stop. You can't get to me that way. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tells us, for by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one should boast. Friends, if you're here today and you've never come to faith in Jesus Christ, I invite you to do so this morning. I want to close our time with a prayer. It's a prayer where you can say to God, God, I am a sinner. The word sin means you've missed the mark. You've been a person who has not been perfect 100% of the time. Not a single one of us here has ever been perfect our whole life. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the standard of God, that, that standard of perfection. We owe a penalty for our sins. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, but, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And if you will say to God today, God, I am a sinner, and I'm turning from my sin to you to be my Savior. God, I want to come home. I want, to, I want to quit living the way I have been running from you. And today I want to come home and be your son. I want to be your daughter. God says, I will welcome you home. You are a part of my family. If you'd like to ask Jesus to be your savior, I want you just to bow your heads with me. And I want you to pray this prayer. You don't have to walk the aisle. You don't have to raise a hand. You just have to acknowledge in your heart these things. So say to God in the privacy of your mind and heart, dear God, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that as a sinner, I deserve the penalty of death. I thank you, Jesus, that you died in my place. That you went to the cross and paid that penalty of death that I owed. I I believe, Jesus, that you didn't stay dead in the tomb, but you rose from the, the grave just as you said you would. And I thank you, God, that as one who is alive in heaven, you have a place for me, as you promised. You said that you go ahead to prepare a place for us in my father's house. And if it were not so, I would have told you so. Lord, you have a room for me because I'm your son. I'm your daughter. I've turned from my sin and to you to be my savior. Thank you, Jesus, for paying my penalty of death. Thank you for making me a part of your family. 
Thank you for being my Savior. Would you help me to live for you today? I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. Amen. Friends, if you prayed that prayer, I'd love to talk to you after the service. The prayer leaders at the front would like to as well. We want to make sure you understand that step of faith you just took. For the rest of us who have already come to faith in Jesus Christ, I want to remind you that if you've drifted away, if you've turned your back on God, that God isn't done with you yet. Like Peter, he says, I'm ready to hit the reset button to restore and recommission you today. So turn to Jesus today. Start your walk with him fresh today. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.